All right, rolling. Say go. Uh, Ellie Mistal, I've never met until right here. So almost everybody else, there was you know some connection from the past. Uh, he's a Harvard-educated attorney, a very demonstrative political commentator and Twitterer. Uh, he wrote the book, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. He can give me his other credits. All I know him as, he's the guy when I was watching TV during this insane period we're living in, I was like, oh, I'm not crazy. Because that guy just said stuff I was thinking, said it in his own way, in a more educated way probably, but okay, I'm not crazy. But again, I don't want to just listen to people who think like me either. So sometimes I would listen to the other team, just what are they talking about over there? But I'm glad to have them. And we put this list out of, here's people I find interesting who I'd like to talk to who I already know, and then there's some that I don't know, and you're one of them, so nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Kenny Main, man. I have dreamt about being interviewed by you. Granted, I thought it was going to be after I figured out how to deal with the curveball, that that's when we... <laughs> that was the only thing holding me back, man. <laughs> Everything was great until until the, the, the spinning started coming out, and I couldn't couldn't stay in the box. But other than that, you know, life takes you where, 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 where you need to be. Agreed. Thank you for saying that, 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 that I've been kind of channeling some of the things that you want to say on television, because I, I, I feel like one of the things that one of the problems that we're having in our country right now is that there's, there is an assumption, right? There's like kind of a top level assumption that things are okay. And things are going to be fine. And we have to still protect and like, nothing is fine. Nothing is okay right now. Um, we are in kind of a dire situation, and I feel like people people need to get that, and people need to start kind of acting appropriately. We are facing, I think, kind of uh, what's we're a little before generational threats um, right now, and, and I hope that people um, can understand that. And I hope that sometimes my commentary helps people understand that. Hell, all I was going to do is talk about baseball to start, but you know, if you just want to go ham right away, let's we'll do whatever you want. Um, your recent tweet, your most recent tweet, this is coming off vacation to New Orleans, as I understand it, you wrote, this is a special Mets year. And this is after the sweep of the Yankees. And apparently you must be a Mets fan. Woo! Party like it's 1986. There it is. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's, I, so I, I was born in Flushing, right? So, so, so you could hear Shay from, uh, my apartment window. Um, uh, when I was growing up and yeah, we were, I, that's where I was living in 86. Like, I think we didn't move until the, till the late, until like 88, we didn't move out to Long Island. Um, so like the Mets are kind of like in my blood, like at a very kind of visceral sense. And baseball is my favorite sport. I feel like it's like me and Chris Rock are like the last two, like African-Americans still on, <laughs> still on the baseball, um, train. And it's, it's sat like a, as a, a kind of black commentator as a black pundit as a black author it is kind of sad for me always that like the the popularity of this sport has waned so strongly in the black community to be overtaken by football and and, and basketball when you know back in the day i mean baseball baseball is no pun intended integral to our country's uh uh success with integration right like jackie mm -hmm. robinson that that was no joke. There was a, there was a reason why it kind of had to happen with baseball first before it happened with school. It happened oh, no yeah. with with baseball, and so like I, I there's a 
deep history of, you know, from Jackie Robinson to Kurt Flood. I mean, there's a deep history of African-Americans not just contributing to baseball, but contributing to the country through baseball that we've, you know, that we really, uh, I think that we've lost over, you know, my generation really. Um, and that, that's always, you know, I always, so I always try to rep my baseball love, um, when I get the opportunity, because I think it's such an important part of the American story and the, and the history of contributions of African-Americans to this country. Well, there've been a bunch of efforts and it's been going on actually for quite a while where the point you're making was noted many years ago, Ozzie Smith's been involved in, in programs to kind of re-instill the, the love of baseball in inner city. Why do you think it is that so many people chose other things or was the opportunity not there as readily? There's not that many baseball fields, right? It's easier to have a gym, indoor basketball. Everybody has a high school football team, but baseball, maybe that's all it is. Yeah, I mean, I think there are lots, I mean, there are lots of different reasons. I think the main thing is that the sport's not cool, right? I've got two kids. I got nine, nine and six-year-old um, boys, uh, you know, middle-class family, right? So they've got access to the bats and the gloves and the fields and whatever. Basketball's the cool sport. I got my oldest son. He doesn't like basketball. Like, he, like, doesn't physically enjoy the process of playing basketball. But he knows a lot about basketball because all of his friends play basketball and all of his friends know about basketball. And so, like, he's by osmosis knows like more about basketball um, than he does any other sport, despite not actually liking it. Right. You're describing kind of branding. You're saying these sports were made to look cooler, whether they are or not, is exactly. arguable. But I'm saying that the, the, the basketball has done a much better job of marketing itself as a cool, hip sport. Um, football in certain parts of the countries obviously um, has that same thing going for it. I think baseball, with, with, do, because of its kind of old school, unwritten rules aspect, I think does a very poor job of marketing itself to the younger generation, right? Like ex watching a game and explaining to my boy, you know, why flipping the bat is a bad form. These days, that's not how we just do it in my day. Like that's just, it's just enervating, right? You kind of want Pete Alonzo so, you know, you want Pete Alonzo after he hits, you know, the, the, the big fly to run around with the bat, playing it like a guitar, you know, <laughs> like that would be more cool. Right. So I think that's part of what's going on. I think the other thing kind of more uh, on an economic level is like, you got to look at where major league baseball invests its resources for young talent. And what we look, it's not like there's not a lot of black people in baseball because major league baseball will go to the islands and find black people sure. who can play baseball. Right. And invest in that, uh, invest in that training, invest in those youth facilities. Um, uh, I mean, and get people from the islands into the sport in a way that they're not doing, quite frankly, in, you know, urban environments, in places that need just as much, would need just as much resources and training. You're not saying exactly that investment on the home front. We're kind of leaving it up to the high schools. And then, as you already pointed out, Kenny, the high schools have like, High schools are already doing a lot and, other, and, are, and are already kind of pressed um, for resources. Basketball's more popular. Football's more popular. Football makes money. You know, you go out, you know, I live, look, I'm, I'm a very Northeast liberal elite. Like anything Coastal west elite. of the Hudson is like, whoa, that's, <laughs> that's the boondocks. Right? Farm country. Right. But you go west of the Mississippi, which is like this whole other river. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you know. High school football makes money. I lived in Indiana, Kenny, for a 
13 months of nine, I wasn't counting about 13 months, nine days and about 10 hours. Um, I lived in Indianapolis, um, for my, my senior year of high school and just going from kind of Western Long Island high school football, which was like, you know, it, which was an intramural sport for sure to, you know, Indianapolis, Indiana, where they're putting high school football games on television. Yeah. And, and it's just, it, the whole town shows up. There's no equivalent, um, for, for, for baseball like that. And so I think that's another reason why when you get kind of talk about the cool factor, um, other sports have it differently than baseball does right now. Yeah. I mean, there's always going to be a pecking order, right? Mm -hmm. Something's number one and something's number 10 and, you know, boys indoor lacrosse is going to be 14th no offense to boys indoor lacrosse um by the way introduce your kids to julio rodriguez our new star in seattle no oh. he's ridiculous i i was back home that's where i'm from south of seattle and we went out there and got to two mariner games got to a sue bird game with the storm and man a the team is playing better than expected and b this guy's he's like griffey 2.0 nah. he's, he's gonna be something he already is something and that's a lot to stick those two names together, but you know, you got to start somewhere. Well, I think it really goes to your third point as well. I th baseball more than I think people always say this about hockey, which I didn't never really got into, but the you have to, you know, hockey in the arena is different than hockey on television. And I feel that strongly with baseball as well. Like you got to take, you know, you got to take the kids to the game, put their butts in the seat with the hot dog. And then you can experience what baseball really should be like the pace where you get to, Talk, you know, one of the things that I love about taking my kids to the game is that you get to talk to your kids, right? They're not on the phone. They're <laughs> like, you just get to sit and talk with your children while eating. It's, it's, it's a real nice family experience, but that adds a lot to the game in a way that you, that you don't need to add that to the game for, you know, football or, or, or basketball, football and basketball, they come through the television just perfectly. Right. And here's something nerdy I do. I didn't do it this last trip because I had so many people, you know, that was kind of entertaining family and friends at this, at this game. Um, but if I go by myself or just, you know, with my nephew or somebody, I keep score during the game. I oh, get wow. the, I get the temporary scorecard that I toss on the way out, but it's something, <laughs> as you say, it's slower. I'd be honestly, and I love baseball, but it's not my number one football is my number one, but I'd be there's too much time to kill. You need to do something between pitches. Otherwise you're holding a long conversation for almost three hours. When I go by myself, I'll bring a book. I mean, I, you know, read between innings, read during the pitching changes. If you're a Met fan, there could be a lot of pitching changes. So you, <laughs> you, you, you get, if you go by yourself, if you go with, but if you go with people, like you really get to kind of just spend an afternoon with, uh, with your friends or family in a way that that's relaxing and nice. It's, it's really, it's a day at the park with just a structured activity, uh, uh, um, built in. Is it strange to you that you were requested to be on this? And after, I don't know if you saw or didn't see, but Jamel Hill's going to be a guest and we had Sarah Kinzor and Jason Kander, obviously I'm going down one road politically. Right. And now we're just fucking talking baseball and I'm about to talk about your children tweet. Is it weird at all? given how you're immersed seven days a week, seemingly 24 hours a day and what's going on in this country politically, socially, racially, every E. And yet you are able to say, hey, I'm going to have a little baseball now. Hey, I'm going to talk about my kids. Like it is for me, like sometimes I almost feel guilty doing something that was once pleasurable for sure. 
now with the weight of everything going on, it feels weird to do anything quote unquote normal. Yeah. So I think I have two, two answers to that. One is it's a function of part of it is a function of being black in America my whole life, right? Like there's, there's a level at which the, the barbarians are always at the gate, man. Like it's just, there, there's just a level at which like you always know that the, yeah. One of the analogies I've made, like every time I get into a car and drive myself around my generally white neighborhood, like I'm in the back of my mind, I know that like, that's a dangerous thing for me to do. Right. And so like, you can kind of like sit in that the entire time and drive, you know, 10 and two, just super split, right. Or you can just like accept the risk and just try to move forward, just try to move through it. You know, that kind of intensely personal decision-making, I think has tracked to my professional life and my professional coverage. Like there's, there's always something horrible just behind the corner, you know, just around the corner, just behind the door. And you have to kind of accept that and still move on with things that make you feel normal, things that make you feel connected, um, and what have you. Right. So that's, that's part of my answer. Um, the other part is that you, one of the things that happens in law a lot, and that's my main focus, right? That's what I mainly talk about. One of the things that happens in law a lot is that the people who make the decisions or comment about the decisions do it at such a remove from the real people on the ground, right? They're, it's like their heads on sticks. They're talking about like really uh, highfalutin legal concepts and they lose the sense that like that's a person you know, in a death penalty case, that's a person who dies tomorrow because of this thing that you just wrote, right? Judge, that's a, that's, that's a, an abortion situation. That is, that is a, 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 a pregnant person who was forced to give birth tomorrow because of something y'all just wrote. That is a gun that gets bought and sold and potentially used in a crime tomorrow, right? So I try to keep really present in in the moment of like, who is actually being affected? What's actually going to happen to real people after this decision, after this policy change, um, after this ruling, like what happens on the ground? And so kind of in, in a weird way, like reminding myself of what's happening on the ground in my life is actually part of the same process, right? Like here I am, I'm a real person. I'm dealing with real people stuff. Also, there are real people in Missouri who now have to figure out how to escape Missouri to access constitutional rights, and they might be trailed by bounty hunters if they do. It's the, it's actually the same. It's the same part of my brain that's doing that. Like if that makes sense. Oh uh, well, that was a lot, and I don't want to blow past the first part. Basically, you were in short, you were describing what's known as driving while black, right? Mm -hmm. And a whole bunch of white people maybe more than 50% won't get that. Like they'd hear what you just said and go, oh, he's full of shit. It's free country and everybody has equal rights and things have changed. And the record shows that what you said is true. And that's not to say all cops are bad. Only the bad cops are bad. The good <laughs> cops are good and the bad cops are bad. I keep saying the same thing over and over. And, and I think until you, you can't really live somebody else's experience. I can, I can hear what you're saying and I identify with it like intellectually, but I can't feel it because I'm not you and I've never lived it. I never had to tell my children other than be respectful and follow the rules. I didn't say, watch out if you get pulled over. I never so, had to give that speech. Right. 
when we first moved in, again, I live in, I live in Westchester, so it's a predominantly white, it's more diverse than some other parts of Westchester, but it's still predominantly white neighborhood where I live. Um, and so when we first moved in, I had the housewarming party. I'm going to the Metro North station to, to pick up friends, to drive them to my, my new home for a little party. And on one of my trips back and forth, um, I pick up a tail, a cop tails me from the train station, six minutes to my house. And he's telling me the entire time. And my friends don't notice. They're just, you know, they're like, oh, look at the neighborhood. And so as we're pulling into my driveway, I have to tell my friends like, all right, what I need you guys to do is just go into my house and, and, and don't come out. Don't let my wife come out. Don't let my children come out. I have to go deal with this police officer. And they're like, oh, the white friends, <laughs> just do what I say. Right. And so then I don't park in my garage. I park in my driveway. I get out of my car, hands up, not in the kind of classic, like yeah. just hands out and open so they can see them. Right. And I walk slowly towards the police officer who had parked by my mailbox. So the cop gets out and he's like, hi, just super nice. So you, you're, you're new here. I was like, indeed I am. I have just seen <laughs> the massage. And the cops are like, no, you know, I haven't seen you before. I was like, well, again, that's because I just moved in here. Just so you know, I'm not living here alone. I have a wife. I have my mother and my mother-in-law suite. And I have two children. All of them look pretty much like me. And the officer laughs. And he's like, Thank you know, it's just, it's just nice that you're so respectful about it. And then he gets back in his car and drives away. He's going to say, you're one of the good ones. Now, is he a good cop or a bad cop? He's in the middle. Right? He, he, didn't, he didn't hurt me. He didn't threaten me. He was just checking in on the new guy in the neighborhood. I mean, you could read it that way. Of course, that's not what happened. <laughs> I was racially profiled right. for six and a half minutes driving home and then had to explain my existence to a white cop upon arrival at my own damn house. Like, that's what happened. But how people interpret what happened, how people interpret what they should do in that situation is different. And so one of the things that you, you try to explain to people who do not have that lived experience, who have not, who have not, and will never be there, um, is that you, you can't, you have to understand the stress cost of every interaction, right? 90% of your interactions, 95% of your interactions are going to be fine. 90, as in, most of the cops are good cops. Great. I don't get to know who's the good cop or the bad cop when they pull up behind me. I don't get to know. So I have to kind of assume that everyone is a bad cop. Everyone is going to be the worst cop and react accordingly. As a means of protection. As a means of self-protection. So all that said, uh, back to the original question, is it weird or do you feel any guilt when you do so-called regular things? You say three hours, I'm watching the Mets. I'm letting Trump go for three hours, or maybe you're not. Maybe you're on Twitter while you're watching the Mets. No, no. Self-care is good care. I, I, I don't feel, I don't feel guilty when I log off or when I, uh, you know, I play a lot of video games. That's my other kind of hobby. 
I don't feel guilty when I take time off to do, to do that kind of stuff. I don't feel guilty when I tweet about baseball. I don't feel, I mean, I don't usually tweet about celebrity gossip news. I'm not as interested in that as other people, but like if something comes across the wire, you know, tweeting about the Wakanda forever premiere or, or whatever, I don't feel guilty about that because the it's, you know, but here's the other thing, Kenny, like Twitter is not my real job either. Right. Like, <laughs> like the, like I have an actual job that I get paid money for and it's not making dick jokes on Twitter. Right. There's like there's an actual profession that I have. Right. And so like when I write for the nation or when I freelance in the Washington post or, or whatever, I'm usually not talking about Pete Alonzo. Right. I'm, I'm so like when I'm putting my work effort in, I feel like I generally stay on point. Um, and so if I don't put in that kind of effort to a tweet, but that goes to my like political tweets as well, right? Like I'll throw ideas out on Twitter that I haven't done fully baked that are kind of in the baking process. Oh, it's more, it's more like, you know, if your Twitter is more like the grocery store, we're like, maybe I can use this avocado sometime. And, oh, here's a nice sausage. I wonder if I can, you know, it's not the meal, like a workshop, right? The, the, the article, the, the, the the 1500 word piece that come, that's the meal. That's when all the thoughts, thoughts have been like marinated and cooked and then added in with some research and some study. And like, that's the, that's the thing that I want people to actually consume. Uh, Twitter is like looking at watching me grocery shop, right? Like it can be interesting for some people, but it's not like, yeah, it's not the work product. I think it's a great place to practice your writing, you know, set up punchline or because you only have so many characters to use. I can't imagine your replies when you spoke about your book, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution, because essentially you said, what I've said, I can get away with it, but because you're Black, you get, right? You get attacked for it, right? It was written by slaveholders who wrote really nice things. Like if you look at the essence of Jefferson's work, like it's beautiful. Like if only that were true for everyone, it's beautiful. But at the time it was written, it was only true for the white people. And then they divvied up three fifths of them to make the electoral college a thing. And right. Like it was written in a whole different time and space. Yeah. The constitution has some great ideas that we should totally try applying to everybody. We, we just haven't. Yeah, we just haven't tried it, tried it yet. You know, one of the reasons why I'm not for a complete kind of constitutional convention and a new, co one of the reasons I'm not, I'm not, you know, an, uh, a particularly strong advocate for that is because I still think the constitution might be interesting if we tried it. We just, we just haven't tried it yet, right? But look, the at, at a core level, what I, what I say in my book, um, um, is not controversial for lawyers to say like right. it, it's not a controversial position that like the constitution is a deeply flawed document right it's not a controversial position to say that the constitution only granted rights to white rich male slaveholders and colonists and some abolitionists who were also willing to make deals with slaveholders and colonists right it's not it's not a controversial thing to say. And then if you go into any kind of black literature, it's not controversial to point out the, the real human flaws of the people who wrote the constitution. Like, you know, one of the things I got a lot, Kenny was like, well, you know, they did the best they could for their time. <laughs> no wrong. Like there are other people, there are other white people at the time who knew that slavery was bad, 
It's like nothing to the fact that if you had asked any of the black people, they also would have told them slavery was bad. So there were lots of people, you know, in real time, they're just like, this slavery thing probably shouldn't do it. Um, yeah. And yet they didn't care. Right? There were lots of people at the time, you know, that, hey, women, they're probably people too, right? We should know. Like there were people who understood that women should be allowed to, you know, finish their sentences in public, but those people were not invited to the constitutional convention, right? So like there, there, there are all of these like really obvious kind of moral, political, and social flaws, both by the men who wrote the thing and in what they wrote. You know, people wrote, another thing that I got a lot of was, you know, well, if you, if you think you're so smart, why don't you could just, why don't you just write a better constitution? Sure. No problem. How about the president is elected by popular vote as opposed to electoral college? Boom. Better. <laughs> I would agree with that one. Not hard. It's actually not hard to write a better document. And also the, the key argument there in favor is you look at other executive uh, elections in the state level, right? They don't, in the state of Washington, they don't break it down by counties. They have a popular vote for the state of Washington and somebody's elected governor. Yeah. The idea that the electoral college protects small states, it does not. Florida is not a small state. Right. Okay. Yet we have to fight over every sentient blade of grass in Florida because it's not, it's not that it's a small state or a big state. It's that it's a close state. So the electoral college favors close states. But it also perversely disfavors states that are with huge amounts of people, but with, which are close, right? So one of the things that I, I've done since 2020 to, to get people to think about this a little bit differently, namely the state where Trump, Donald Trump, got the most votes in 2020. And that state is California. California. Trump got more raw votes out of California than he did in every other state. That makes sense. California is the biggest state. There are a lot of people there. A lot of those people are Republicans. Right. But because of the Electoral College, Trump could for four years pretend California didn't exist. I mean, this is a president who literally at one point in his presidency was basically like, yeah, let California burn. They didn't vote for me. In fact... Millions and millions and millions and millions of Californians voted for Donald Trump twice, but because of the Electoral College, he could pretend that his own people in California didn't exist and write off the state as a state where he's not going to win. Same thing that he could do for New York. And quite frankly, it's something the Democrats can do when they're in charge for states like Texas, for states like Iowa, for states like Indiana. We can just pretend they don't exist because we're not going to win those states in the Electoral College, right? That is perverse and wrong. Yeah. If you had a national popular vote, people like Donald Trump could not ignore Republicans in California, could not ignore the state of California any more than he could ignore Republicans in any other state. He would have to care about Republicans in California and Montana equally because there would all be potential Republican votes. And Joe Biden would have to care about Democrats in Texas and Florida and New York equally, because they would all be potential Democratic votes. Exactly. The, elect, the Electoral College has, you know, what they would say in literature, has a weirding effect on our national politics and not a good one. But, but don't we also have to go back to, it was a concession to the Southern states to begin with, right? They wanted more electoral votes. All right, we'll call the black people 60% of a person, three-fifths uh, of it. Of course, right? The, 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 the thing that always strikes me, right, is that the people who were unwilling to give 
representation to the enslaved people wanted more representation for themselves. Yeah, exactly. Or they needed yeah. their personhood, however you right. want to. And they, because the, what, what the original constitution was, was done, was written to do, was to protect a fundamentally apartheid system where a minority of people, Southern people, could influence the majority of the nation that was, if not completely against slavery, certainly against the further spread of slavery. Right? Like that, and the whole thing is designed to protect the prerogatives of those Southern states. So people always say like, oh, well, you know, if you don't like it, you can just amend the constitution. You know, the one thing you can't amend in the constitution, it is the equal suffrage in the Senate. Mm -hmm. The idea that all states get the same number of senators, that is literally in the constitution as a thing that cannot be amended out of the constitution. That equal suffrage for the states, which means an unequal uh, representation of the people, that's locked in. You have to throw the entire, only the states that benefit from that, like basically all 50 states would have to agree to give up their equal suffrage. How about we add more states, D.C., Puerto Rico? How about we add more Supreme Court justices to equal the number of district justices, right? Like there's, there's a, for getting sides, obviously there's a reason for this now. Um, those are logical arguments, aren't they? I'm a huge fan of adding just, uh, in the words of Kermit, Kermit the Frog, we need more bears and chickens and dogs and cats and things. Like, we just need more. <laughs> um, we need more people in Congress. I forget exactly the math. Um, so don't quote me on this, even though we're recording. Uh, <laughs> like, if you, because you know, in the original Constitution, they had a mathematical formula. Each congressional district should represent X amount of people. Right. And so they just kept adding seats until we got to 435 people in the House of Representatives and said, oh, that's just too much now. Round chairs, no more <laughs> House members, right? But if we sell, sometime in the 20s, I think, in the 1920s, maybe. Uh, but if we kept that same formula, I think we'd be up over 700 Congress people to, to keep the, the population uh, uh, metrics the same, right? So right. the fact that we have locked it at 435 people as opposed to continuing to expand Congress to take into account our growing population. That is also a lack of representation and, and, and an anti-democratic decision that we've made. The Senate obviously designed to be anti-democratic and the Supreme Court obviously designed to be anti-democratic as well, but we are due for a court expansion. And this has nothing to do, like I have partisan reasons for court expansion too that I'm happy to talk about, but like I have a lot of just good government reform, nonpartisan reasons for, for, for court expansion, right? Um, first of all, let's talk about the lower courts. The Judicial Conference, which is like a group of like nonpartisan ex-judges and blah, blah, blah. They say that we need about 75 new lower court justices today just to handle the workload. We are a litigious people. As we grow, we have more lawsuits. The lower courts are being overtopped with lawsuits after lawsuit after lawsuit, not enough judges to handle the paperwork. So, so we just need a lower court. We used to do this about every 30 years, like clockwork. But the last time we did it was the 90s because we're so, we're so gridlocked now that we can't get out of our own way. But we need more lower court judges already. And when you got to the Supreme Court, I mean, we, I've talked a lot about how the number of justices on the Supreme Court has changed over time. You know, this is not baseball. Nine is not a magic number. Right. Um, uh, we, we could have more. We have had more in the past. The, the big thing about court expansion to me, beyond, again, the politics and the decision-making 
um, and the kinds of decisions that you get out of it is that what we have right now is an extremist court. Forget liberal conservative for a second. What we have is, is an extremist court because all it takes to make something happen now is five votes. So if you get you and four of your friends, you can do anything you want to the laws of this nation. The, That's been now, proven recently. Yeah. Right. The analogy I like to make is like, like if you, you try to go out to dinner, right? You try to, you go to Vegas and you try to go out to dinner and you got to just convince four of your buddies where you ended up, right? You're going to, you're going to end up in some places in Vegas, right? You're going to go off the strip maybe um, in Vegas, right? Now imagine it's a much larger group. You got 20 odd people, 30 odd people, and you got to get 15 of them. Yeah. So go to dinner. Where are you going to go to dinner? Applebee's. It's going to be a longer debate, right? You're going to go to Chili's. You're going to go to some anodyne, like good for everybody place with breadsticks. Like that's where you're going to end up. And so if you have more justices by its nature, you get more moderate decisions because herding cats is difficult, right? Even in the abortion decision, we've got six conservatives, but only five of them were for the most extreme position. So they couldn't even keep all six of them together on this thing. So if you imagine they had to get 15 together, right? Like that's so, so you've got just court reform. When I when I talk about court expansion as court reform, I really do mean that it will reform how the Supreme court operates. And that is a good, that is a good thing beyond the partisan split and the decision-making that comes out of it. So you believe the expansion and more representation would result in more just decisions as well? I believe it was results in more moderate decisions, right? Yeah. Now, to get more just decisions, now I do need to have my partisan people. Well, here's the place. thing. So many of the things we're talking about, we're, you know, we could talk for hours um, to even get through one of them, right? They weren't just because Trump walked down that escalator or ascended from the escalator that one day and talked about all the American carnage, whatever. Um, they were built years, if not decades before that. And he was just the vessel with which to implement all this insanity. He's just the one that brought them victory, but the infrastructure was in place for the past 30 years. The, the conservatives developed an entirely different way of, of understanding the law in order to come to the point where they could defeat um, Roe v. Wade. One of the things that I've tried to explain to people is that if you go to back to 1992, I wrote an article about this in the nation. If you look, go to 1992, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, that was the decision that upheld Roe v. Wade 30 years ago with new restrictions on, you know, new restrictions on the right to choose, but fundamentally upheld Roe v. Wade. That was a 5-4 decision. All five of the justices were appointed by Republican presidents. In fact, the 1992 court was eight to one Republican appointees versus Democrat appointees. So how did we in 30 years go from all five Republican justices agreeing to uphold Roe to now just 30 years later, all six Republican justices agree to overturn it. And what they've done to accomplish that is that they started, Republicans started appointing judges who do not care about facts who do not care about reality. Because if you go back and look at the 1992 decision upholding Roe v. Wade, it was not people who like abortion, okay? <laughs> it was not people who like women's rights. It was not people who like federal government power. These were people, these were states' rights confederates 
who took a dim view of women's rights and didn't like abortions writ large, but they understood that the facts on the ground were such that abortions were going to happen anyway, that no society had ever successfully outlawed abortion. And whether people have to do it in defiance of the court or the state or the tyrants, people will take control of their own bodies by any means necessary. And so what the 1992 court did was like, look at that reality and say, all right, all right, all right. These things are going to happen. How do we make them regulated? How do we make them safe? How do we make this a thing that people can do without creating a black market for this stuff, right? Fast forward 30 years later, and these Republicans don't care about reality. They don't care about the facts on the ground. They think they can do these things by judicial fiat. And one of the things you have to understand is that the kind of Republican justice that can think that way can also say things like climate change doesn't exist or we don't care about it can also say gun violence. That's not a thing that this court has to worry about. Like all of these other decisions that you see from the Supreme Court are actually all part of the same extremist logic that tells them they don't have to care about facts. Yeah. You're touching on something else that's, that's across the board where now those on one side and those on the other side are almost looking at a totally different set of facts or I believe like, like people say, oh, MSNBC is just like Fox, except they're on the left. I said, they might have more left-leaning people, but they usually supply some facts. They don't quite do that on Tucker's hour, do they? Yeah, no. The, the, and 40% the, of the people are watching it every night. The media sausage is, is, has made very differently over there. There's spin, which I imagine everybody does. I guess you know, I can be accused of doing spin. Sure. Like for instance, I'm calling the Republican justices extremists. That's, a, that's, a, that's an opinion word. That's a spin. Right, right. That's that's uh, that's a twelve to six curveball there. I guess you could argue, <laughs> um, right? But what the they do on the other networks is they straight up lie, right? And, and like the, there there should be a, an understanding of the difference there. Um, I was on. Uh, I don't know when this is going to air. I was on when we we're recording this. I was on Chris Hayes last night, and we were talking about how uh, the acting uh, defense secretary during the Trump administration said on Hannity. Directly, oh, Trump had 10,000 troops ready to go for January 6th. Unequivocally said that yes. on Hannity. But then when he had to testify under oath to the January 6th committee, so no, Trump didn't have 10,000. That that's ridiculous. How could anybody even think that Trump had? And it's just, so they just lied straight up on the program. Here's, here's the biggest difference, though. When you lie on Fox and get caught lying on Fox, they do what? They invite you back on Fox. Well, not just that. They invite you back on the Sunday network shows too. I mean, right? I could point to one in particular. Um, and the same people who are pathological liars on all sorts of things. And joining us again is Ted Cruz, to, you know, and, and, as, and what that does is it normalizes whatever the hell that person's saying. And we play the both sides game. And I'm all for both sides of an issue. That should be the way it is. If only both sides are playing in reality. I love, like, I, I, I love debating people that I disagree with um, about what we should do about a shared set of facts. You know, I, I'm, I, I went to law school because I liked arguing, right? And you can debate somebody in good faith if you have a shared set of facts. But when you have people who are, who are not operating from that shared set of facts, who are, in fact, willing to make up facts to serve their argument when you have people who are purposefully resistant to facts and resistant to education there is no debate there's just screaming
I think in a lot of cases, I know people who grew up identifying as a Republican. So they're going to almost always believe whatever that side selling because the other guys, those are those socialist people, those lefties, and I'm going to stick with the, and, and it's, what is it? Ignorance is bliss. Just, I'm going to just close my eyes to facts that are new to me and just keep believing the one side. So if they keep on telling one story, there is no agreement that two plus two is four. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) That's that, that, that is how they win. Um, they, they, there, there's, there's real tribalism, right? Like we, we, we started our conversation talking about the Mets, right? Like I am a tribal Mets fan. I believe the Mets are great and I want them to do great and I'm going to watch their games. And if you tell me that like, actually there's this other team and, in New York, that's uh, just as good and probably actually wins. Well, I don't want to hear about that. I don't want to hear about your pinstripes. Oh, <laughs> and you're closing the gap on them, by the way. You're only five games back if they were in the same division, I think. And, and tribalism is fun and okay and fine in, in the sports, sports context, yeah. right? I think tribalism is fine and okay and fine in your family context. I'm a fan of my kids, right? Like, I think my kids are great. Uh, <laughs> right? What, what, where, where it becomes a problem is when the tribalism um, prevents you from having knowledge, right? So, like, if I was so much of a Met fan that I'm just like, Aaron Judge, he sucked. No, no, dude, that's just, that's just incorrect. Aaron Judge is, is a very good baseball. Mike Trout is a very good baseball player. Sure. And for me to not know that because they're not on my team, that, that's, where you get, that's where you have problems. Um, the, the other thing that I always say to people, oh, the left is just as bad or, like, you're just as siloed. Um, or what have you, is that I, as an African-American, at least, I'm not allowed to be siloed. I don't get to, to exist in this country just talking to other black people and talking to other liberal black people. No, no, no. I, I've got to understand what's happening in the larger country. I've got to understand what's happening in white America. I've got to be aware of those things i might agree or disagree but i can't i can't pretend they don't exist i'm just i'm just not allowed zerlina maxwell um has a line that i love she says you know she's a black woman you know grew up in a black and level but i know all the lyrics to bon jovi right she because <laughs> i she has to she has to know all the lyrics to bon jovi to be able to be culturally competent in this country right and white people gave away without having to they might yeah. do it option like an elective right i'm gonna take an elective in hip-hop you know right so you've got you got people who who've chosen to do that but they don't they you you can walk around your life without knowing the lyrics to nas right you, you can you, you you can have a completely full life without being able to name one jay-z song nobody will think poorly of you right and it, and it's uh, this also what with cultural competence there it's amazing to me how many of my friends, you know, uh, or, or white people I know is just like, well, you know, I didn't really grow up around any black people. I didn't really meet any black people until I went to college. Man, that's because let me tell I met white people before I went to college. Yeah. yeah. Right? <laughs> well, I mean, I grew up, I think there were three black people in my high school quickly in college because I played football right away. And to my benefit, I learned how to play dominoes at UNLV. Okay, it's a West Coast game. <laughs> As we come back from break, this is Kenny. That's me uh, doing an insert 
the day before this episode comes out because in the original taping with Ellie, I asked him point blank, is Merrick Garland going to do anything of substance between when we're taping and when this episode runs? And as you know now, you know, in the last couple of weeks, it turns out he did something more than he had been. Obviously, we had no idea the FBI was going into Mar-a-Lago. Um, I'm not a surprise necessarily. Shocking and surprising are two different things. By the way, if you want to know what I think, nothing but care. Well, this is my show, so I guess you care somewhat. Or maybe you just listen for the guests and you hate me and you'd rather we could just book really good guests and I just quit. There's a chance there are some of you. Uh, but my take on it is, wow, there sure is a lot of evidence already. In fact, there was a lot of evidence before the new evidence of the last week or so. It was all right there in plain sight. But anyway, we're going to cut Ellie's answer out in this case because who could have known precisely what was going to happen? Uh, mostly, we just kind of got into the notion that Democrats can be kind of soft sometimes, not quite as aggressive. They follow the rules too much. Not that I want people to break the rules. You know what I'm saying? I will ask this question. I've asked it a bunch. Nobody seems to have an answer. Why is DeJoy still the Postmaster General? All right, let's pick it back up. Well, I mean, like there's there's too much institutionalism even from the very top. Biden, why is DeJoy still in charge of the post office? There, there, that, that, that to me, that is the the core reason of why we fail, right? We are, we are, we are playing chess and we're like, look to E7. And the Republicans are like flipping the chess table over and beating us over the head with it. And we're like, you flipped over your king, you technically lose. Like, nope, like <laughs> nobody cares. Like, like we get in the game or get in the real game because we're, what, that's the thing. We're playing a game. Republicans are playing to win. And this is a this 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 does I think Kenny go back to an institutionalized concern because Democrats are fans of institutions, right? We this is this is the asymmetric war that we're fighting. We think institutions can work. We think institutions are good. We think that institutions should be about politics. So we get in there and we try to defend institutions, whereas Republicans get in there and they just try to smash them. And it's so much easier to smash. Again, I've, I've mentioned already that I've had have a nine and a six-year-old, right? And it's, and when they were younger, and six-year-olds didn't do this now, right? But like when it was six and three, right? Three-year-old just comes and smashes the Lego house. And then this older one has to rebuild it because it's so much easier and it takes so much more time to rebuild the Lego house after it's been monster stomped on by a toddler, right? And, and that's what, that's always what we are. Like the Republicans are the top toddlers kind of smashing our Lego bricks and then we have to like very slowly, okay, let's go back and rebuild the house, start with the door frame. It's it's an asymmetric war and, and it's and it's why Democrats always feel like we're 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 losing ground, right? So what, what my solution is always um we need to we need to abandon some of these institutions uh um uh in order to fight fire with fire. But, you know, I understand that when I say that, like, that's a that that itself is a dangerous proposition. Well, when I hear Hakeem Jeffries speak, I'm like, I want some of that. I want some of that nerve and that passion spread throughout and, and be able to fight on equal terms. Hakeem's, Hakeem's a good one. My congressman in my in my district is Jamal Bowman. He's been arrested at the Capitol, right? Like he's like there there, there are good young leaders out here. We'll see. <laughs> you didn't answer. Why is DeJoy still the postmaster general? Yeah. Um, 
I'm trying not to get in trouble getting. Uh, they, he should have been fired on day one. He right. should have been fired on day one. And the idea that you can't fire him, would, would that have stopped Trump? Would that, no, like, you know, just, you, you appoint a temporary, like, there could have been 500 temporary. That's what he added. I, 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 or, you, you know, you, well, the other thing, too, and this is why I, I, I often say that, like, my, the real job I want in this administration is not attorney general, it is director of petty. Because the other thing that should do is that you make DeJoy's job intolerable to the point where he himself resigns, right? There it is. You get to be postmaster general um, from Anchorage <laughs> in a damn igloo um, yeah. where, where, where your only friends are three huskies that you have to mush to get a Coke. And people have forgotten about that. What a serious thing it is. Um, you know, there are, there are people who for whom a stamp is a real expense, right? I'm not belittling them. I'm like, like they're budgeting everything. And, and, and for them to get stuff in the mail, whether it's a medicine or whether it's a check or whatever it is, and it's delayed because of the slowness of it all. And that seemed to be intentional. I would argue back when he was, I mean, the evidence is there for that. I got, you want, you want to hear, you want to hear a story? So I got fired from my job at the, so when I was a, uh, student at Harvard college, I was on work study somewhat obviously, and I got fired from my job for the library. Um, because, uh, you know, you get paid every week and my check didn't come. There was some kind of issue. My check didn't come one week. All right. All right. Second week. Now I'm supposed to get a double paycheck, but there's some other issue. Apparently there was like a fire in a box and it burnt like the box of checks that included my check. And I'm like, I'm just two weeks. I can't, I need some, I need the money. Yeah. So I end up complaining and I end up being transferred to somebody who identifies himself as the head of the Harvard library system. I'm like, okay, you're the guy who can help me. I, me, student, two checks, need, need some money. And this guy says, listen, student, why don't you ask your parents for money? <laughs> and when I tell you, man, that I lost it, I mean, like, I don't remember the rest of that conversation. I do remember that by the time I hung up the phone, I didn't have a job no more. Like, <laughs> <laughs> completely lost it and this this idea that you could that that this delay was nothing to this man that i was talking to right and quite frankly wasn't a lot to a lot of my friends at college right but to me the difference between having a check one on yeah. thursday versus having it on tuesday was like was i going to be able to eat over the weekend when the dining hall was closed the people people who aren't who don't live paycheck to paycheck do not understand. <laughs> right. Oh, that's like the same argument now. Like, why don't they just go to another state? Well, that's a lot. You'd have to move out of where you live and find first and last elsewhere. And not everybody has that ability. We want to end on, we're going to end on hope. Okay. Somehow. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to battle. We're going to get there. Firstly, though, controversy. Are you a shift proponent or an anti-shift proponent in baseball? Because that's the thing. And yeah. also baseball rules. The unwritten rules are so stupid. I don't want to go there because they're all stupid. But on the shift, I've heard. So I was interviewed. I was at a Mariner game. And they had me on and we were looking on the field. There's like 19 people on the right side. And I was like, okay, he should just throw a bunt down like Rod Carew would yeah. throw it like, left. The, and they're like, the, not everybody's Rod Carew. I said, well, too bad. Be better. You know, that's your problem. It's no different to me. If a football defense came nine up and just two safeties back, then you got some options, right? You should run really? past those guys. What you're that's exactly where I am. I, I'm I'm fine with the shift because I, I to me I apply Bill Belichick rules. Like if you if you 
if you loaded up 10 in the box against Belichick, what would he do? He'd throw a dunk pass to the tight end right over the top. He'd run for days, right? Hit the ball to the other side. Damn it. Practice it. That would be like saying, (laughs) yeah, that'd be like saying you can't play zone or you can't double team a guy. It's just another method by which to play defense. Some notice that historically this guy always hits over here. Let's make him try to hit over there because he seems like he can't. Exactly. So I'm fine with the ship. Where, 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 where I do get like old school in my day, we didn't like, I get, we got to do something about pitching changes. Like it's like I, the rule that you have to face at least three batters. I liked that rule change. I would make it like, like you have to pitch the two innings or your arm has to be like hanging off the side. Like I don't want to disagree. I'm, I'm in, I remember some days. And by the way, you're talking about your Shea. I meant to mention this long time ago. My dad worked for the airlines for my 11th birthday. We got to fly for $3 anywhere in the country, right? $6 oh, wow. first class. And he, for my 11th birthday, it sounded very bougie, but it was really $12, flew me to New York because my team was the Reds. We didn't have a team in Seattle. We had the pilots who left to be the Brewers. And then we had the Mariners like seven years later. And in that interim, the Reds were my team because they were the big red machine and all those guys. And Reds met at Shea, at Old Shea. And that was, man, what a a trip. But that has nothing to do with the last question. You, You go to Twitter often for your little breaks and you quote your children, the little conversations, very entertaining. And it shows the wonder you have about your kids and the wonder they have about the world. Uh, give me something hopeful. And I bet you it regards your children. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll say this. Um, so we're, 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 we just got back from the world. And so we have all this time in the airport and, you know, we're kind of delayed and we're in the airport when it comes, that new reporting came out with Garland and he had the lesser old interview and, you know, whatever. Um, and so my mom and I are talking about it. And the nine-year-old says, um, does this mean the bad people will go to jail now? And I say, well, no, probably not right now. And he's like, well, you know, daddy, eventually the bad people will go to jail because they always do. And I'm like, that's the right attitude, at least, right? That is the right attitude. Did you then say there's been a whole bunch of wrongfully convicted people too? That's the other side of that. No, we were, we're going to be anti-carceral at 10. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my my oldest one he's a he, he really he believes that fundamental fairness is possible that's a good um, that's a good I, trait. i haven't i haven't had the heart to take that away from him yet oh i've been saying it forever the good the good will win eventually but i'll say yours are too young th- those who can vote i'm really like inspired by all these young people who are starting voters rights groups and get out the vote like they, they ain't giving up and you would think, given the recent decisions, particularly Supreme Court, and just the way that there'd be a lot of motivated people. There should be a lot of motivated women, you would think. And look, the, the question is white suburban women, right? Like the, the non-white women have consistently voted against this party and their, the Republican Party and their policies. But about half of white women voted for Trump tw- twice. And, the, and the, the issue there is always like they, they, they know that they will be able to have the means to go access rights, even if those rights can only be accessed in Canada. They understand that they will have means to do that. And I think that's, that's scary for them. Younger women, I think, is where, where, you, where you do have some hope. Um, and younger people in general, I think, is where you have to have some hope. Because, like, we're, we're stealing their future. Like, our, <laughs> our policies are directly making their future worse. And they know it. It's a huge generation all becoming, you know, politically aware right around now. And if they vote like it, 
if millennials start voting like boomers instead of voting like Gen X, um, anything is possible. That's hopeful enough. We'll go. We'll, we'll take it. We're gonna run with that. <laughs> I appreciate your time. It was great meeting you. Keep on doing the thing you do. And I know who my wife voted for. <laughs> hey, Maine is a production of me, Kenny Maine, and Odyssey. Our senior producer is Paul Aspen. Our executive producer is Jody Avergan. And our executive producer for Odyssey is Lena Glazer. Social media support by Joey Capone. If you like our show, please rate us, leave a review, and don't forget to subscribe. <laughs>